As an entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur, how can you ensure the success of your business and your quality of life? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. This program will help you to identify and make necessary changes in your life and your business. You'll find the challenges that you're facing and solutions in the examples of lifelong business owners who have entrepreneurship in their DNA. You'll also learn from experts who've transformed their mindset and skills to become industry leaders. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined by Drew Davis, who is a human capital advisor to Fulcrum Investing, a private investment group that focuses on seed stage investments nationwide having also served as the COO for a startup and as a leader in the restaurant industry, Drew contributes his business and leadership expertise in providing life and career coaching to corporate professionals who are looking to become entrepreneurs. Drew, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Hamda. I'm excited to be here. So let's jump into the sticky topic of exits and transitions. I know that this is something that you've had a lot of experience with in your own career since you exited from a venture that you helped to start, and you also initiated a variety of other successful segues in your career. I'd love to hear about your evolution and also how you managed the whole change process in a way that kept both your legacy and your relationships intact. Sure. I will try and do that at, at what I will call a medium length <laughs> so as to not bore you and the listeners. But of course, if there's anything you want to dig into, um, please feel free to, to stop me or, or circle back at the end. But yes, my career has had quite a bit of transition. In about 10 years, I think I've held seven or eight different positions across all the different companies. And I think if I had to kind of break it into distinct segments, I would say the first three quarters of that was really driven by this notion of climbing a ladder. Not a concept that I think people are unfamiliar with, right? You know, you want to continue to work in better places and higher positions with a better salary and a better title and on and on and on. So particularly early in my career, actually the restaurant industry ended up being a really fantastic place to start because it's a very meritocratic environment. Uh, if you are willing to put in the time and the hours and frankly not need to be paid a ton of money, which when you are 22, 23, 24 is an available option to you. The way that you got opportunities was to just chase them adamantly and speak up about them. So in my first three years, I went from being a busboy to being a beverage director in New York City managing a $5 million P&L. And how I got to that last role was literally I was acting as a floor manager and the wine director and the bar manager gave notice on the same day. And so I actually called up the director of operations and said, I will take both jobs and save you a salary if you just hire a manager behind me so that I can have a shot at taking on these challenges. And she said, sure, give it a try. And I, if I hadn't said anything, I'm fa fairly certain that opportunity would not have been created. But then I kind of got to what I would call a plateau and that I didn't understand where to go next. I felt like I was at the top of the ladder or at least to be able to take the size of leap I had been able to make to that point, I didn't quite know what to do. So I decided to pivot and I went to business school, which is what brought me to Chicago about five years ago. And when I got here, my goal was to really learn how to manage the business as an owner 
rather than as just someone kind of managing the business. And resetting and reframing my mind that way led me to meeting my future business partner, Hunter Swartz, who actually had a finance background, but had a real passion for the breakfast space. So he and I launched the Eastman Egg Company, first as a food truck and then as a brick and mortar restaurant concept in Chicago. And we opened four locations over the course of three years. And again, I think a lot of that process and our own growth from four people to 40 people in the four locations was driven by... I don't want to say check the boxes because I think that diminishes what the real experience was, but it was sort of this chip on my shoulder of proving that I could do something, that I could first take the concept from zero to one and then one to two, and that we could scale and that we could raise money and we could kind of do all these things. And then I had this moment where I sort of, I stopped asking myself like, why, why am I doing all of this? Why am I pushing so hard to continue to, to explore this journey? And it, it it wasn't at all that I didn't have any answer, but I realized the answer was I so loved the iterativeness and the quickness of change and how much was happening in the early days. And I realized that the company was kind of cresting into this place where it was more about replicating previous success rather than inventing new. And digging into that insight told me that where I can apply my passion and ability is starting to become a less relevant part of this business. And as such, even though I obviously care about it a tremendous amount and I'm, I'm deeply proud of what I've done, it's probably time for me to go. So I left in August of last year, right before my wedding. And then I took six months, which I, I can best describe as modern soul searching of really trying to to take that insight of loving creativity and iteration and trying to figure out what to do with that. And through some luck and some (laughs) some failure, which is inevitably part of building something good, I kind of arrived at 86 Gravity, which is, if I had to define it succinctly, I would say it's really about helping people to go through the process that I went through of taking a step back from what you're doing day to day, understanding what's driving you from a big picture standpoint, and then using that to define and chart out what they want to go do in the future and as such what the next step of their journey could be or should be. So the next natural question is for you to tell us a little bit about how you came up with 86 Gravity. The the company itself or just the name? The name. Sure. So 86 is is actually from restaurant nomenclature. And way back in the speakeasy days, there was a uh, a bar that had a back exit on 86 Orchard Street. And it became common language to say if the police were coming or if there was going to be a shakedown for, for uh, someone to call and say, hey, you need to 86 your customers, which was a more covert way of saying you need to sneak them out the back door and get them out of the way. So now in restaurants today, you'll still hear 86, but it's reference to being out of something or getting rid of something. So like we're 86 this menu item or please 86, you know, that drink, it's, it's no longer available, whatever it might be. Gravity as I sort of frame it in the context of the name of the business, is really about a problem that you perceive to be unmovable or unchangeable. And as a result, it frames the set of options that you believe that you have available to you as you consider your next move. And a lot of the work that I do is really about challenging the assumptions that create that gravity, that create those blockages in your frame of mind and in your option set. And by blowing those up or kind of destroying them, we can actually create a whole new set of options or alternatives that you can see. And in doing so, help you get to a much clearer sense of what you're picking and why you're picking it. So there is a veil that you're essentially lifting up or releasing. Or well, the the funny thing about coaching is that it's it's actually helping someone to do it internally. 
I would say that as much as I would love to tell you that I'm the one with the sledgehammer, it's really about individuals coming to terms with where those assumptions have come from and how they've been driving their decisions in the past so that they can account for that and make a different set of decisions or use a different set of assumptions for the future. Right. And that's a process of digging a little bit deep to increase self-awareness. Yes, absolutely. Drew, you brought up some really phenomenal points. The first being the, the initiative that you took in pitching yourself, that you actually were cognizant of the changes that were happening within you. You were looking for more opportunity to grow, to reach into the creativity that you mentioned, and you saw it come up in your environment. There was a change that occurred, and you noticed that if you thought about it a little bit creatively, you actually could propose something that you felt ready enough to do at the time that would require some kind of change within the organization, but at the same time, you could leverage the good work you've done, the good name that you had built in order to pitch yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think I think there's, there's certainly a lot to unpack there, but I, I think at a basic level, particularly when I'm working with clients, one of the questions here is like, you know, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have the skills. I don't know if I have the background. I don't know if I have the resume. And to an extent, like, it's ultimately not up to you right? I, or like, it's ultimately up to to someone else, an organization, a hiring manager, whomever, to make the determination if you can or you can't. So just at like a basic starting point, in order to determine whether or not you can or cannot do something, like you have to go try. And you have to get feedback on whether or not you can or can't and understand if the limitation is a lack of skills on your end, is it that the gatekeeper doesn't see how you can create value, whatever that might be. And I think just taking that step to sort of expose yourself to the possibility is the the first really big step. But I think the second one, and something I'll, I'll draw more focus to, is that what I ultimately did first was decide like, man, it would be super cool as a 24-year-old to be a beverage director in New York. So that was the big shiny carrot that I really wanted to go get. And then the question became, how does this serve the organization? And the answer also became very clear in that like, if I can do both jobs, which based on my observations, I believed I could, like I can save them an annual salary for a manager, which is a substantive amount of money, particularly for a restaurant. So I think there's two things at hand. One is getting out of your own head and letting the external world define whether or not you are ready versus your internal perception of whether or not you are, because there may be a huge gap there that you're not aware of. And the second is, in order to more positively position yourself for that kind of opportunity, understand how or why you being in this position will create value for the company. Right. Those are two critical points. Essentially, you're creating a value proposition, taking a look at what it is that you're able to do and ensuring that it will matter to them. Yes, exactly. And I think that's a really key point, whether you're looking to start a business or if you're in that process of evaluating whether or not you want to start a business and you have the opportunity to advance yourself actually in your current organization. So I know through the work that you do with clients, you go through that assessment process and some of them maybe wind up finding ways to be able to reassess their current situation and renegotiate it so that it better aligns with their preferences and their priorities at that particular stage. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that I think it does, which is helpful is, and I'll come up with a generic example, you know, it's like when someone thinks about being a product manager, if you approach that process as what do product managers do and how does that skill set overlap with mine, 
unless you've been a product manager, you're probably not going to be a good fit because you haven't used all the skills that are relevant. So then people end up trying to construct these massively complicated and very wandering stories about how their previous experience actually makes them a perfect fit for it because there were these special circumstances in this context and on and on and on. And like that, it can work and it, it can be compelling, but the amount of practice and effort that has to go into that is is pretty extraordinary for what is still ultimately a low likelihood of conversion. At the same time, if you really dig into a more specific organization or specific department and get a better understanding of what challenges it is that that department is facing, it may turn out that it's actually nothing to do with the core work of being a product manager, but it's actually communication or it's scheduling and staying on time and they really need a scrum master. Or, you know, it could be so many different things that fall outside the realm of what is traditionally considered product management work. And I think, again, people get too inwardly focused on how to position themselves to sound like a job description rather than reaching out and engaging with people to learn more about what the challenges of a specific role, organization, department are, and then using that information to present themselves in a way where it's like, I know what the problem is and I can help solve it because of this versus based on this long convoluted story, I almost match this job description you've created. The the former is just is so much stronger as a way to position yourself and sort of move forward. That's such an interesting point that just on an individual level, in a sense, we can maybe misrepresent in some ways what the true needs are. And it, it happens in organizations as well, that something might be called a certain thing like product manager. But if you dig deeper into the inside and understand better what the needs are, and like you said, what the challenges and unresolved problems are, then you might actually discover that it does align with what your key strengths are. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, the other funny thing I, I find about the entire job search process is like, job descriptions almost always exist because of a problem, right? Like they, like the, the company has identified a need. And then rather than saying like, this is the need we have, they're like, what type of role would best serve that need. Now let's go find the best version of that role. And suddenly they're two or three degrees removed from what the core problem is that they're trying to solve in hiring this person. And so I think as a result, that's why you get such a perverse kind of spread of companies trying to hire people and it being an utter mismatch of the type of person they're looking for to solve the real problem and the type of candidates that show up wanting to solve a different set of problems or to be a different type of person based on the job description that they've read. And that mismatch, I think, accounts for a massive amount of employee turnover and frustration and employer dissatisfaction that it makes their hiring process slow and inefficient. So that's why I always encourage people, and this is definitely a natural tendency of mine, and I will own that and acknowledge that that's part of why I make it part of the programming I do. But when you can when you can cheat the system a little bit and step outside of that traditional structure, there's such a rich opportunity to have a better conversation that will lead to a much clearer understanding of what the problems are that need to be solved, and therefore allowing the candidate to present a much better and more coherent understanding of how they can or cannot address those problems. And the example that you gave, I think, is so perfect in which you took the initiative to pitch yourself for a higher level opportunity within the restaurant industry. If you're able to look at it from more of an aerial perspective and come into it with a sense that you're exploring and you might have an opportunity to help the organization to relook at it and rethink what the role actually is, then it becomes a much more expansive conversation. 
Another point that you brought out that I thought was really important has to do with replicating success. You seem to do that in a very fluid way as you move from one opportunity to another, although I want to acknowledge that that skill set in and of itself is an incredible skill set that many of us would benefit from developing, right? That's the whole idea that wherever you go, you can be successful. And what are the ingredients that contribute to that success? For you, you take it a step further and you're interested in more of the creativity aspect, the, the evolution and change aspect that you get to experience for growth. So one question I have is, what are some suggestions that you have for individuals if they're going from an employee position into an entrepreneurial experience, or maybe the other way around, for replicating success? Sure. So it, it's interesting that you frame it that way, and it's actually very helpful. And, and here's what I would say. So in my early career, I think I got lucky for a lot of reasons, some of which I mentioned, but one of them being that in restaurants, the path forward is actually even more linear than you would imagine, and that a lot of people go into restaurants to open their own. That is really the ultimate reason that you're there. It's to sort of learn and grow in that moment and then go pursue that. Or like, you know, for some of the people, they want to be an actor, they want to be whatever. But for people who love restaurants and want to be there, that path is incredibly well-defined. So when I was looking for growth, it was framed in the context of not how do I find a better job than what I have? It's what can I do that will bring me closer to opening my own place? And if you look at the path from, you know, day one out of college busboy to, five or six years later, opening my first restaurant in 2014, like that's what I did. I just kept taking steps to do more and more that would allow me to get there. And then I got there. So I think something that holds people back in the context of sort of creating that first success and then replicating it is they try and figure out what is better than I have now. And the problem is there are 87,000 ways to evaluate the notion of better than what you have now. We're all familiar with grasses greener syndrome. So if you don't have that North Star, if you don't have that long-term vision of what you ultimately want to get to, it is very hard to, in a contextually specific way, evaluate your next opportunity as additive or subtractive to that process. And as a result, people get really stuck on, you know, well, this salary is 5000 more than this one, but this one has a better title and I can walk to this one, but I drive to this one. And, and you know, you get these really complicated spreadsheets and, and all this analysis that, you know, doesn't answer the fundamental question, like, is this moving you in the direction of the life that you want to create for yourself? And a lot of people haven't done the work to really understand or think about, like, what do I want my life to look like? And I mean that substantively from not just career, but also for family and relationships and geographic location and lifestyle and, and all these different factors. So to the extent that you have the time and flexibility to actually explore those things in a meaningful way and get clear on them, that I think is actually the best thing you can do to create replicable success because you have to define success first so then you can replicate it. If you don't have that, I think then your first priority becomes how can I create a quieter, more settled space in my life so that I can do that important work and then use what I learn and use those insights to go out and build the life that I want more concretely and more actionably. It makes sense that you want to evaluate the opportunities that are before you now from the lens of what your aspiration is in terms of lifestyle and other aspects changes that you might anticipate and the priorities that you have and will have at a later point. For those who are very much present focused and have a hard time 
answering the question, what are you going to be doing five years from now, which can be challenging in our times, what suggestions do you have for being able to take more of a forward look and to document that in a way that is concrete enough to help you in evaluating opportunities now, maybe from more of that macro perspective? Sure. So I think everyone responds differently to the notions of theoretical versus concrete. And everyone just needs to find their foothold. And then I think once you start building, getting to the other steps is actually relatively easy. It's just figuring out where your foothold is to actually start kind of climbing. So if the idea of trying to envision your life in five years blows your hair back, like you just can't possibly conceive of of what any of it might look like, that's fine. What I would then say is like you might want to take a values-based approach which is to say that all of us inherently have a set of core values that to us drive a lot of our decisions and actions, even if it's unconsciously. And something that you can do is, again, take some time and space and really think about what's important to you. And it's funny, I think there's an implicit assumption in many of us that core values for people are going to be fairly similar. Nothing could be further from the truth. They usually are wildly different for all of us, particularly if you force yourself to go through an exercise where you're meaningfully stack ranking the things that you prioritize above all else. I'll give you an example. So I'm not 100% sure where this comes from or how this happened, but in my life, I have always been a deeply competitive person and I have always wanted to be number one. You know, even when I spent three years as a chief operating officer before the age of 30, which is unbelievably cool and really awesome, like I was still aware that I was not number one. And I've just had that itch in me my entire life and sort of having that opportunity to be the the leader, the controller in that spot is valuable to me. Through my work with 86 Gravity, I've spoken to so many people who have said adamantly, like, I never want to be number one. I want to be a number two, a number four, a number five. I want to really support the leadership team. I want to be someone who can add a ton of value, but I never want that weight on my shoulders or on my chest. That's just not attractive to me. And appreciating the fact that what you feel intrinsically and internally is not what others do, and therefore there is value in identifying and actually creating clarity in what those, say, top five or six values are. And then being such a present person, you can look through your day, look through your week, your month, whatever it may be, and ask, like, where are these values showing up for me? How am I applying them in the decisions that I'm making in the work that I'm doing? And you'll understand pretty quickly, like, these are the ones I'm practicing often. These I'm really letting go by the wayside. I'm not putting them to good use. I'm not having them show up in my life as much as I want them to. And and that's a problem for me. So then you start to ask the question like, okay, what can I change to help these values sort of be exercised more regularly in my life, in my relationships, in my career? And then you can start to sort of crack the nut of if I want to make a change based on my values, what could that look like? What should that look like? And what are the options available to me? I see how critical that conversation is because it's like the point that you made about 75% of your career being focused on climbing the ladder, so to speak, and just reflecting in an honest way about that within yourself because you may be positioning yourself to reach for number one. And in reality, though, that's not necessarily where your energy is. That's not where your motivation is. And so it's important to acknowledge that and then take the steps that are necessary to reformulate what your life looks like every day so that it matches that. Yeah, absolutely. If I can, I want to share an anecdote. 
and my my poor wife ends up being like the the subject tester of a lot of the crazy stuff that I come up with before it goes to clients because she's a wonderfully patient person. But just for context, she's a, a corporate lawyer. And we had this really powerful discussion in which we realized that if she were to follow what she perceived to be the path to become a partner at her firm, she would almost invariably burn out. It's such an extraordinary workload. It's so intense and it's so stressful. And so the question became like, if that's what it takes to get there and doing so is not possible, why would you do it? Why would you pursue a path that you know by definition is unmanageable? And in doing so, she was able to sort of reframe how she used her energy and how she shows up in a work context and has had massive success in being an incredible team player and adding a ton of value to the firm, but doing it in a way that fit much better with how she wanted to show up and and what she wanted to do. And similarly, I've talked to a lot of people who say, well, I have to do XYZ to be a partner or to be a a director or whatever. And then we ask the question, you know, do you really want that? Like if you think about what that lifestyle is, what that salary is, kind of what that day-to-day looks like, does that get you excited? Does that make you happy? And a lot of people are like, no, (laughs) it's not. I don't want that at all. I look at the people above me and it makes me really sad. It's like, okay, well, great. Let's not shoot for that then. That seems like a really terrible outcome for you to put all this work in for. And now we get to ask the question like, if you did work that hard, what would you expect? What would you want it to look like? And that is usually the space where I get people who want to try entrepreneurship because it's not that they're not willing to work hard. It's that the reality they see ahead of them in the context of what they would be doing is not enough. And they want to change that. They have the opportunity to have greater autonomy to design their work lives in a way that matches where they really are. Yes, precisely. So this point about creating your own definition of success is so foundational you have to get yourself on board. You have to have that clarity in order to be able to communicate clearly to other people. If you're going to be evaluated based on something you're striving for, you're striving for number one, you're striving for partnership, but you're really not there and you're not going to get there because your motivation's not behind it. You're still going to be evaluated based on that and you could be found lacking and you can find yourself lacking. So the idea is to realign the vision and feel good about it, feel confident about it, and convey that so that people are actually assessing you for something that you're positioning yourself to be really strong in. Right. Or, you know, I would actually say the worst outcome is that you you suffer through it and you get there and you're miserable, <laughs> right? It's like you you deny yourself the opportunity to define that success. And then you climb all the way to the top of the ladder, you get the big promotion, you get the big salary, and you realize like, I don't want to be here. And now you've invested all this specific time, energy, and work to become this thing that that doesn't satisfy you that doesn't make you happy like that that to me is the scariest outcome of all even in the context of the risk of starting your own business leaving the firm starting something new whatever it might be and that's why i agree with the way you framed it earlier you know that defining your own success and using that as your compass point for how you make decisions is a critical critical step and i i think a lot of people wait a very long time before they start doing it and it's to their detriment. It, you know, it's not the end of the world. A lot of people at the ages 40, 50, even 60 can can go go do that work and, and make a change. But the sooner you do it, the sooner you can actually align yourself with everything that is, is meaningful to you and positive and have a, a much more joyous and, and hopefully success-oriented career rather than one where you are chasing the definition of success that came from somebody else. 
So let's pick up on that point of alignment. Let's say you're in a place where you have more of that alignment, you have more of a clear perception of where you're at and what would be compatible. What suggestions can you offer in terms of actually making that transition from a corporate job into entrepreneurship, including how you exit gracefully? Sure. So when it comes to a graceful exit, what is truly funny from my perspective is that I have very rarely had a client leave a corporate setting and be loathed by coworkers. Most of their coworkers are like, it's awesome that you're going to go do that. I wish I could go do that. Right. Because everyone, like a lot of people don't want to be kind of on the corporate ladder. A lot of people don't want to be stuck in that chain, but it's created a lifestyle that is comfortable and predictable for them. And they don't want to leave that, but they see this risk. They see this opportunity and they celebrate it. So I think the right way to go about it is to just be thoughtful in how you exit. Don't do anything outside of the norm. You know, give appropriate notice, be communicative, wrap up your projects appropriately, take good care of the the direct reports you have and make sure that they're lined up with with thoughtful mentors or leaders behind you. I think that's something a lot of people don't do that they could necessarily. But I don't think there's a systemic issue of being hated for leaving to take on something more independent. If anything, I actually think it's it's quite celebrated. And then in the context of how you prepare yourself to (laughs) go through the graceful transition from corporate to entrepreneurship, I would say just get ready to have a lot of people tell you that your idea sucks. And I don't like, I don't care if you're Uber, I don't care if you're Airbnb, I don't care what it is. Like a lot of people, and for a whole variety of reasons, you know, are not going to immediately understand the value proposition or the reasons that you decide to make this jump because almost always it is high risk, low reward, particularly in the early stages. So on paper, it is a mathematical improbability, if not impossibility, to make it seem like you just made a brilliant decision. And I think it's crucial that you sort of shore up your own self-confidence And again, because you know what you want success to look like and where you're going, you can feel confident in the face of people saying, I don't understand or I don't like or I disagree with the way that you're choosing to approach this. Those would would be my two biggest suggestions. Sounds like in terms of exits, which is certainly a separate question in and of itself, the idea is that if you have a concern about how people will react to your departure based on the experience you have for the most part, people are impressed and encouraged by someone's initiative to go for something that they want, go for something that's important to them that involves some risk. And at the same time, it seems embedded in your suggestion is that you want to approach it just the same way that you've approached a continuum of, of your career, with thoughtfulness, with diligence, with respect, with attention to how you can position the work that you've done transfer it in a way that's going to be very beneficial for the organization and and facilitate as smooth as possible a transition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, at at the risk of saying something contentious, it's, it's been my genuine belief for a long time. If you work for an organization that can't figure out how to thoughtfully replace you in less than a month, that's not a well functioning organization. And as much as we would all love to believe that we are precious snowflakes, who are the only ones capable of doing the unique work that we do, we're all pretty replaceable to a point. And so if you're leaving an organization and you are getting stabbed in the back and called a traitor and you know told that the, the company's really going to struggle now because they're going to have to do all this work to replace you, that's just not a good place to work. 
period. And you can step outside of that context and objectively look at it as like, yeah, that was not a, a healthy, supportive place to work. And it's probably better that I'm leaving anyway. Well, I think also maybe it depends on your role within the organization. Like as an example, I work with someone who was the president of a mid-sized company that she helped to build across 17 years. And so for her, I think the transition was very much about shifting her role to more of a guide and a historian as opposed to someone really who executed more hands-on on a strategic level, reaching out to not just colleagues, but also the external business partners who were an important part of the organization. She was really essentially a very key element of the brand of the company, having been there for so many years and been such a central person in the evolution of the organization. So I do think that also depends on what role you have assumed and how large that is within the organization and just taking the time to work with the key people within the environment to design an approach that can at least increase the comfort level. Because sometimes when someone in a key leadership position leaves, people get scared and it can prompt other people to leave. And so that's how I see it, that there's, that's kind of an inherent part of the responsibility also. Because if you're looking to transition into entrepreneurship or just to take some time off to take stock then obviously that's a thoughtful shift. It's something that you're going to put some planning and preparation into. And I think of transitions as the same. Yeah. No, and so to be clear, the context is always important. And there's there's invariably going to be things to to consider in that context. But again, like I think I wouldn't even call this pushback. I guess I would just add a, a counterpoint. When people leave I think there's two ways they can approach it. One is that I need to document exactly what I do everywhere all the time so that someone can replicate what I've done. And frankly, I think that's what a lot of companies ask exiting employees to do. And I actually think that does them a tremendous disservice. I think the key is to figure out what problems do I solve and sort of what obstacles do I help eliminate for the company and how do we put either one person or several people in the position to continue to either do it as well as I was doing, if not massively improve on that process. Because in my leaving, I'm actually creating an opportunity for change with some thoughtful oversight and meaningful guidance. And so, yeah, look, if you've been you know, president of a place and you built it from zero and you've been there for 17 years, it is certainly going to take more than an arm and a leg to just replace that person. But I do think that you can choose to approach it in a way that is less about defensively trying to shore up where that person is going to leave versus proactively building upon what that person has done and find ways to even improve upon those processes by bringing new blood and new life into either that role or a series of roles to support those functions. Yeah, and I think that there's alignment in what we're sharing in the sense that you're suggesting to approach it strategically with a perspective about what might be really valuable for the organization. So essentially you're positioned to offer a gift by way of your own transition and to look at it from an opportunity perspective and help the organization to do that as well. So what else would you recommend? Having had the experience that you've had with startups, you referred to the element of risk that's involved when you're making a segue to entrepreneurship. So as you're working with corporate professionals, and these types of changes in their lives, looking to start a business or get involved in some other kind of entrepreneurial endeavor, what kind of advice would you give to them in terms of 
the process of preparation and also guidance for startups? You know, I, I think, again, what I would refer back to is that my role is less about providing advice and more so about helping people to feel clear and strong in their convictions about what they're doing and why they're doing it. So it is my job to ask them some thoughtful questions about where their convictions come from and how strongly they're held. And, you know, to provide some examples, sometimes people create a conviction based on what they want to do because they really hate the way their company does it and they want to go out and do their own thing. That can be a great reason to start or it can be a terrible one because as soon as they extricate themselves from the corporate environment, they realize they're actually not passionate about that subject at all. It was just really annoying when they were there. And so again, like that now positions them awkwardly and that they've left their job, they've gotten ready to take on this journey, and they don't actually have the fire in their stomach that they're going to need to sort of move on and go forward. So I, I truly believe either if it's leaving one corporate role for another, going from corporate to entrepreneurship, doing the reverse, whatever it is, if, if you can create a clear definition of what success means, looks like, and feels like to you, and if you get really fancy, if you can create some actual manifestations of what that would look like and how long you want that to take, and then make a determination of what your next step should be based on what you believe genuinely will sort of bring you furthest along a path to get there, I think that is where you're going to experience the most success because you're going to have that alignment and that that clarity. And so as far as advice, the only thing I would say is like, whatever you're thinking of now, wait. <laughs> Just don't do it tomorrow because there's a lot of time and space for that to change and evolve and adapt. And once you've really pressure tested it and poked it and pulled it and pried it apart and put it back together, then you're going to know you have something that is ready for the test of whatever may come next rather than kind of a whim you have that you talk about with a few buddies and you're like, cool, let's do this. That's, I, th I think, where you have a potential for not good outcomes. Right. So there's a planning process that you would initiate while you're still working. And some people, of course, have very intense roles and that can be challenging. But there are some steps that you can take while you're still in your current role to do some exploration based on the ideas that you have. You can create a personal mission statement as an example. And that will help you to really tune in to the overarching goal of what it is that you would like to initiate as a next step in your career. And then that would lead to other steps that you can take so that you have some clarity defined. And again, some people decide that they're in a position where they can take some time off and really think through it more carefully. But there is some initiation that can happen before you step out of your role. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Is there anything that you would add based on your own experience, what it was like for you when you went from an employee position to building a startup? I would say this. So there are certainly things that I experienced and that I went through that I think other people can learn from. But I would also say that I, I think the reality of entrepreneurship is that you never know what's going to happen. And so much of it, or perhaps the best way to go into it is to acknowledge that something will happen that you cannot predict almost unequivocally. And in those moments, that is actually where your mind will be most focused, your team will sort of bond together most readily. And it is those moments of crisis that actually, I think, best define how people work together, what a company's values are, and how they solve problems. So 
they should be prepared for anything and everything and knowing that it is all sort of part of the process of learning and understanding how you manifest as a leader in that environment. It's almost like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever want to try and prepare someone to be in a certain mindset and then have them get struck with something that was totally counter to what they had been preparing for and then feel even more unprepared than they would have if they had just sort of been open and available to whatever challenges were going to come down the road. So it's clear you're the kind of person who can jump in. You have a decent amount of risk tolerance built in. I most certainly do. And again, that's one of the things that I think you have to evaluate if you want to go into entrepreneurship is, you know, either if you have high risk tolerance, you can go with the flow and that's fine. If you don't, what does it look like when you have a big reaction to stress or the unexpected? How does that manifest for you? How does that manifest for your team? And do you think that you and the group of people you want to work with can sustain yourselves through the process during which there will inevitably inevitably be a lot of stress and a lot of turmoil? And the answer for some people is yes, and they they find thoughtful ways to do it. And the answer for others is no, they they can't. In which case, again, you know, maybe for them being number one is not the best option being number three, four, five. So they get access to the early experience. They get an opportunity to really build and grow something from the ground up, but they aren't necessarily the one who has to go home and figure everything out at the end of the night alone. I think part of that is also really understanding your own style Mm -hmm. because there are many people who are very planful, very organized, very structured, many highly successful entrepreneurs who have a style like that. And then it's just understanding where you might want to balance out your own style so that you can embrace the variety of opportunities that may be before you and also so that you can adapt to the situations, as you mentioned, that are unanticipated. And so I could I could see how if you're working, Drew, with someone who has more of that very structured style, that would be helpful to have the feedback that you're sharing about being able to land on your feet, being fluid in different ways, that you're just taking a look at the complement of skill sets and feedback that would be helpful to you as you're moving forward in your experience. And even if you've been in an organization for a long time, looking at the feedback that you've gotten throughout your career can be helpful in identifying places where it would be good to enlist people who have more of those characteristics, more of those strengths that can complement and complete what it is that you're bringing. Yes, absolutely. I want to thank you so much, Drew, for sharing your experiences, the variety of transitions that you've made in your life, having this strong background in entrepreneurship, and then helping individuals now who are looking to make some significant transitions in their lives to have a very introspective approach and really piece out the places where they need to focus their attention that will liberate them for their next move. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. This was fun. I'd love for you to share also, Drew, if someone wants to reach out to you to explore the coaching work that you're doing, what's the best way to sure. do that? Uh, the, the easiest way to get a hold of me is just by email. It's Drew, D-R-E-W, at 86gravity.com. So it's number eight, number six, gravity.com. Also on my website, there's a number of contact forms you can fill out if you want to give me a bit of information. And I'm more than happy to, to get on the phone and learn more about where you are and where you want to go. Thank you so much.
I'd like to also invite listeners, if you have comments or unanswered questions about today's episode, please share them by emailing me at hosthemda at gmail.com. You can also share comments and questions by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Life and Career Choices. As always, until next time, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I am Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Turn the Page. Turn the Page is sponsored in part by Life and Career Choices, Inc. Host Hemda Mizrahi invites you to email her at hosthemda at gmail.com to explore becoming a sponsor or affiliate of the show. Until next time, make one change that will benefit your life and your business.